Hi, um, my name is Amanda Groves, and I live in Benton, Kentucky. I depend upon the ACA because right now I'm not a full-time employee. I work part-time. I'm a substitute in the schools, and I'm also a student in seminary pursuing a second career, which I am very excited about. So it is because of ACA that I have the freedom to pursue an, uh, my dream, do something different, and look out for my family. My husband has health issues. He can't drive, and he has several medical appointments. So it would be very hard for me to work a full-time job. So it has been very beneficial to me. Um, I get supplements from the government. I'm not on Medicaid, but um, I do get some help from the government. But I still have a pretty high pre pretty high premium, pretty high deductibles, and so I still have medical bills, so this, there, it is not a free ride. And so single payer would be the best answer for everyone involved. Um, even though I have insurance, I have really bad knee issues. They need to be replaced, but I can't, I, I can't do it because I, I do not have the funds uh, saved up to do something like that, to commit myself to something like that. So single payer would allow me to live my life to the fullest. I'm Kirk Gillenwaters. I'm a retired UAW member from right here in Louisville, Kentucky, working at one of the Ford plants. Um, I have supported single payer, I guess since the very initiative when uh, Congressman Connors came out with this uh, and put it in, into Congress. Uh, I helped to get the UAW's endorsement for this because I know what this means to the average American to be able to have health care for a better quality of life. It, it's just extremely sad knowing where we are on the list within the industrial countries of this world on the lack of having health care for each and every individual. Good deal. Thanks, sir. All right, Mark. Broadcasting from the historic Hayburn Building in downtown Louisville, it's time for Single Payer Radio, a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Health Care. We're an affiliate of the Kentucky Chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program. And we're a long-standing community partner with Forward Radio WFMP LP 106.5. I'm Mark McKinley. I'm a volunteer with the group. And the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the speakers and not the station. And speaking of the station, Forward Radio is Louisville's all-volunteer, progressive community radio station. We're a Pacifica affiliate, and we ask you to join our independent media movement by going to forwardradio.org. On this week's episode, we're revisiting a conversation with Dr. Fran Weinstock, who was with us up in the studio back in February of 2018. But before we get into that conversation, I want to remind our listeners to get their marching shoes on because Louisville and 33 other cities will march and rally for improved Medicare for All. We'll meet Saturday morning 
11 a.m. on July 24th. We're meeting uh, down at the Mazzoli Federal Building at 7th and Chestnut. There will be a few speakers, music, little march, and refreshments. After all, it's Medicare's 56th birthday. Join us. For more information, go to the website kyhealthcare.org or check out Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare on Facebook. Now, let's get to that conversation with Dr. Weinstock. Today in the studio, we have Dr. Fran Weinstock. Dr. Weinstock has been a family physician for 34 years and is a volunteer at St. Joseph's Health Clinic down in Butchertown. She's active in the Louisville peace and justice community. And thanks to Jim Johnson for helping us to connect to Dr. Weinstock. She's in the studio with us. Dr. Weinstock, thank you very much. Hi, thank you. You're welcome. Um, Dr. Weinstock, I'd like to start off, if we could, with a little time travel. If we could go back in time to get your take on trends during your time in family practice. We know that in 1971, U.S. healthcare spending was 7% of the economy. Today, it's more like 18% of the economy. Sure. Well, let me back it up from my perspective, almost a little bit more than that. Um, I want to just talk about family practice as a field. And family practice came into being um, at a time when there the only residencies were in specialties, but there was no generalist specialty. There had always been GPs, G for general, but family medicine uh, was an effort in the 80s to inject social philosophy into medicine and to give the young doctors uh, more training so that we would be trained in what was considered new at that time. Certainly it is not new at this time, but at that time, you know, we were there with all whatever was cutting edge. And there were 10 programs in the country uh, that were originators of family medicine, and I was uh, accepted at one in Massachusetts, University of Massachusetts. And it was in interestingly set up in that um, in the training there were three possible clinics that one would link up with. One was an urban clinic, one was suburban, and one was rural. And mine was uh, the rural clinic. Um, I had, in medical school, taken a scholarship from what existed at that time called the National Health Service Corps that paid for um, most of my medical education, not all of it. And I was then required to give back year for year for the amount of time that they supported me in medical school. Um, and on a funny note, I almost didn't do it because my very serious boyfriend at the time, my beau, um, would not have been able to make a living at most of the places they direct me directed us to. And at the very last minute, we um, found a spot in Taylorsville and the what's called the Spencer County Rural Health Clinic, which is actually a part of Park Duval, was absolutely brand new and opening up at that time. Um, and it's kind of odd that that clinic, which uh, was for people who had absolutely no insurance at all, 
was part of Parc Duval, which is considered a Louisville inner city clinic. And the reason was that um, the president, Reagan, had put a stop to opening new clinics. And so the way that they got around that was to open a clinic under the auspices of Parc Duval. So I did start there, um, and it was difficult. For me, one of the most difficult things at all was that people absolutely had no insurance. So if you had a medical card or Medicaid, that was like a uh, gold card, some kind of an international American Express gold card. Mostly the people there had no ability to pay for any kind of testing. And uh, fortunately, the, uh, there was a pharmacy in the clinic, and most prescriptions cost $2 a month. Um, so it was that practice was not a typical middle-class practice, which is what I went into after my three years in the in the rural clinic were over. Um, and I started to do, because I thought it was important, I thought I needed to, I started to do things like obstetrics. And after less than a year, I gave that up because um, I had a few really bad days where I was alone, I was doing it, and things went south, as they like to say. And gynecologists did come in and help me out. Um, and family practice today the question of whether or not to do OB is still an issue um, because if you're going to be involved in obstetrics, certainly you should know how to do forceps and C-sections if there are problems with the delivery. Um, so I was very happy at that point to give up obstetrics. And I don't think very many family physicians do OB anymore. I don't know if there are any in the whole state of Kentucky. I know that there are none in Louisville. There may be some in other places. I recently met a woman from southern Indiana who is still doing obstetrics. So anyway, not to belabor that point, um, but my concept of what primary care is, it's, it's defined as uh, family medicine. There is no general medicine anymore. GPs really can't practice in this country. Internal medicine, pediatrics, and to some extent gynecology is also called primary care. Uh, anyway, ask me another question. Okay. Well, and, and when you talk about uh, Spencer County, the practice you were in, being part of Park Duval Community Health Center, right now, as we know, funding for community health centers are in limbo. I mean, they are nearing a cliff, and we've gotten the children's uh, health insurance program funding passed, but um, yeah, we've got to get our community health center uh, funding going. During your your time, say from um, Spencer County, when there was no what, where the insurance card was the exception as opposed to the rule, and you moved into uh, family practice, did you see just the the insurance coverage issue change, or was that for, for was it a, a more middle class uh, patient that you were seeing from then? And, I, I and do feel that when I went into private practice, I moved into the middle class. Um, I would never turn a patient away, and I saw plenty of times where someone would have insurance and then they would lose it, and then they would get it again. And I would never ask that person not to come in. Um, 
What was that a function of? They would change jobs and their insurance. It was would, a job related. Yeah, it was okay. a job related issue. The healthcare spending as a percent of the economy from seven percent to seventeen percent, almost eighteen percent today. I mean, it's like, what's going on here? What's what's causing that? Is the are the patients sicker, or you know, I'm kind, it's kind of a setup question. Oh, gee, there could be a little bit of patients getting sicker as as a society we become more obese. But I feel like the primary um, problems are the prices of drugs um, that have gone up, and I have some things to say about that, and the prices of procedures, and the cost of doing of providing health care having to do with the ancillary staff that's required now to run an office. Um, Gosh, when I first went into practice just by myself alone, I had one employee, <laughs> and it worked. It was a small practice, but it worked. She would greet the people, and I would do all the blood pressures. Everything was on paper, and it grew and grew and grew and grew to the point where in any practice now, you have to have a person who does solely does referrals. You have to have people to challenge the insurance companies to uh, to try to get certain drugs approved that you want to prescribe. You have to have a um, scheduling person. Um, you have just, it, these are people who are separate from the medical assistant whose job is to answer phone calls and put patients back and take their vital signs. Uh, but they also have to do all the refills and get a lot involved to a large extent in uh, what are called prior authorizations, which is when I pres prescribe a drug, and they might or might not be able to get it depending on how many hoops we jump through. It's very, very time-consuming and very frustrating. Um, so talking about drug prices, we live in a crazy country in the sense that you can get very, very good, sophisticated drugs extremely cheaply, and sometimes for free um, at certain uh, big box pharmacies that do uh, provide these medicines for free as what's called a lost leader. And they, they get you into the store and they give you free atorvastatin, which is Lipitor, or metformin, glucophage. But then you, they know that you're going to buy milk and you're going to buy underwear and you're going to buy a TV set and all the other things um, in their store. So for them it works out. These are the minority. These are medications are in the minority. There's a huge and growing number of outrageously expensive medicines. Some of them are generics. So, for instance, you take uh, an antifungal pill called terbinafine, uh, which is Lamisil, and it used to be $400 a month. And I'll never forget one day a woman came in and told me it was $4 a month. And I just thought she was crazy, totally crazy. And I called the pharmacy. Indeed, that drug had dropped from 400 to $4 a month. However, it has now gone back to $400 a month. Even though they can produce it and sell it and, and probably make some sort of profit at $4 a month, they realize that they can go back and they're selling it $400 a month. And another extremely glaring example is a Medicine that's used for gout, it's been around for hundreds of years, um, and it's uh, 
Colchris is is the new name. That's the only company <clears throat> that went to the FDA and jumped through all the hoops to get their product approved for this gout medicine. And now they charge a huge amount of money for this medicine. And all of the generics have dropped out of the market because their companies don't want to pay the expense of going to the FDA. So those are two examples. When I say going to the FDA, I mean doing all the studies that the FDA requires. Um, those are examples of things that should be very, very cheap, and they are outrageously expensive. And then all the new medicines, for instance, there are several generations of diabetes medicines that are new. They've come out, let's say, in the last five years. None of them are affordable. Every single one of them you have to get a prior authorization for from the insurance company. Um, and many places don't use them. Same thing with the newer types of insulin. And I don't even know all the details about the onco oncology medicines, but they're all very expensive as well. And there are the medicines that um, no one wants to produce them because there's not enough profit, and therefore we have a scarcity of those things. And these are like necessities in medicine for some group of patient um, that needs to have these medicines. So we have just a, a huge, confusing free-for-all uh, when it comes to meds in this country. And talking about why, med why uh, medicine is so expensive in this country, um, when you talk about doing procedures, let's look at surgery. Let's look at elective surgery. There is no way or there hasn't been until maybe the very recent past, to find out what different hospitals are going to charge and to choose the hospital based on a hospital that might have a good price and a good reputation. Um, I have a daughter, a wonderful daughter, I hope you're listening, Molly, <laughs> who had to have about 10 different sets of ear tubes, meaning tympanostomy tubes placed from age one through about age 16, she kept having to have these tubes. And the price variations were ridiculous when you would compare later, when all was said and done, one hospital charged two times for each year a separate operating room price. So it was as if she had had four surgeries on her two ears to place these tubes. Um, that was the most expensive. I don't know if I should name names of which hospital that was. I, I won't. I don't see any point in doing that. But um, those are the kinds of things that make the prices of medicine so high. Now, when we talk about the drug pricing, I mean, have you seen that? These these numbers just skyrocket yes. in the last five years, the last 10 years? I mean, when did you really, when was the first time about when you you were told this, and it's like, what in the hell is going on here? I think it's going to be in the last 10 years. I think it's gotten worse in the last 10 years. Um, the Medicines come out in groups, so somebody starts to discover and produce, let's say, the ACEs or the ARBs, those are two hypertension medicines. And you, we get, we physicians get hit in the face with 10. There were 10 ACE inhibitors that were out on the market. Now the prices of, of those have come down. And um, lisinopril, which is the most commonly prescribed one, is, is very cheap. 
Uh, but if once we get to the new generation of diabetes medicines, as I said previously, the prices are ridiculous, and there's not one of them. Even the ones that have been out for more than 10 years, there's not one of them that's reasonably priced. Now, when you visit other countries, do they experience the same price-gouging policies? That no, are- they don't. I like to say... That two years ago, I went to Italy, and the best thing I bought were Ventolin inhalers for $4 a piece. For, with my insurance, working for a large hospital here, uh, one inhaler was $35 using my insurance, and I think that the standard price is $60. And when I went to Italy, I bought a total of eight, and I brought them home, and that was my big gift from Italy because I'm asthmatic. I have asthma. And I just came back from Nicaragua, and the price for a Ventil inhaler was um, about $3.50 for each one, um, which to them would be a lot of money. But to us, it's, you know, small. <laughs> so souvenirs. Yes. This is what these we've come to These are my Italian right inhalers, and these are my Nicaraguan <laughs> inhalers. You know, and they're all exactly the same as the American-made. They're, it's the same pharmaceutical company that's producing them the plastic is the same color the you know mechanism that makes them squirt is exactly the same mechanism the box is the same the only thing that's different is the price well could there is there any relationship between the money that goes from pharmaceutical companies into our legislative processes the <laughs> lobbying efforts uh, does that result in any of these prices? Yeah, I think it must because you talk about the top, I think it was the top three lobbies that just were printed in the paper within the last week, and one of the top in the top was uh, the pharmaceutical industry. So they have to be aware of what they're doing with the prices. Okay. Fran, when you were talking about some of the issues that, that you've seen, drug prices, procedures, and then staffing, can you talk about staffing in a family practice, what it had been? I think you said you opened with a, a receptionist and you. And me, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's very funny. And, and we've had um, a, a guest on. She lives outside of Toronto, her family doctor. She goes in. It's, she swipes her card. The, it's a family friend. It's just one person who who deals the the scheduling and also filing the insurance um, for the single-payer system there, and then the rest of it is all medical. Uh, Talk about the trends that you've seen in staffing for folks who are dealing with, like you said, on the phone with insurance companies, uh, trying to get approval for, for different treatments or drugs, Well, we live in a corporate system, most of us now, and I just retired having left a large corporation. And I think, let me say that I think that the hearts of those people are in the right place. I think that that institution is really trying to do the best they can and provide as much medical treatment as they can for the most people. You can guess which one that was. <laughs> Maybe not. But uh, we we had myself and two nurse practitioners, and uh, we had a, f- a receptionist. 
And we had a lab person who was from a separate company, and they would do the labs, but they would draw the blood. And then each provider had a medical assistant. Uh, we had a manager. We had a referral specialist. And we had a, a fill-in person who would do all the leftover junk, all the things that had to be done. Um, and I'm about to transition into another job where they have even more levels than that. Uh, I'm going to be working maybe one day a week, so I really truly am retired. And I think that they have more people on their staff than what I just described. So it takes a huge number of people. And the previous job that was the corporation job, um, imagine in the hospital setting there were a large number of people receiving the inf input from the company, from our company. And I'm not... I'm not saying that uh, that it could be any other way, given the system that we have. But uh, so much time is spent on rejections and dealing with the nuances that each insurance company puts out there. That's what makes it so difficult. And, and the, what are called peer-to-peer -peer review, where you have to get on the phone and prove to a physician um, that what you want to do is the right thing and that his company should approve it. Now, is that you getting on the phone, taking time away from your patients to it talk is. to an insurance company? It is. It is. And uh, most of the time it works out, but it's just one more additional thing that you have to do um, in order to secure whatever the test is that you want. Um, as insurance companies have moved to shift more and more of the cost onto patients with co-pays, high deductibles, high out-of-pocket um, requirements. What are you seeing and hearing from your patients about these issues? Have you lost any patients because the insurance companies have said, well, Dr. Weinstock is no longer in our network, so you're going to have to find another doctor? I mean, what? how, how do some of these uh, insurance company policies that come between a patient and their doctor. How have you seen that, uh, that trend develop? There, have, there has been a steady, small stream of people who have to leave because of insurance not covering them, not being in the network. Um, I was thinking back to the 90s. There was a, an effort in town called TPI, the Physicians Incorporated, where we were trying to have a better bargaining uh, ability with the different insurance companies. And at one point when that first started, we had to drop everybody who is from a particular insurance company somehow in order to make a point. And I can't remember what that point was other than the fact that we were trying to get some control over it. And I lost a lot of patients at that time. Um, most of the time... Um, the person just doesn't come back. And most of the time when a person doesn't come back and switches, they could be dissatisfied, but oftentimes it's insurance, you know, that they say they had to leave. And then sometimes they come back and they, you know, years later they'll say, oh, I, I saw your name on the list and I came right back because, oh, not to glorify me, but people will say things like, you're the only one who ever listened. Now, maybe they say that to all their doctors. <laughs> I don't know, but I've heard it quite a few times. Well, and I, does that get to a point of 
where you're in a, say, a corporate-owned practice, and are there production numbers and how the, the, the amount of time you used to spend with a patient is now squeezed because of some production management issues uh, in order for there to, to be a profit there for the stockholders? Well, in this city right now, there are basically three structures. There's the Baptist structure, the Norton structure, and what used to be the Kentucky One structure. And of Kentucky One, I can't really say much about because I don't know what's happening to that system. As we all know, it's in a state of more than confusion. Um, of the two that I just mentioned, one of them is known for production numbers more than the other. Um, and the physicians, from what I understand, are not happy with it. Um, it's just set in stone. It's cast in stone, the number of patients you're required to see per day. Um, and it, the biggest problem, we haven't talked at all, is the computerization of medicine. We are in a very clumsy phase where computers are necessary at this point in time and the process is not nice. It's a cumbersome, confusing process. Many people are trying to make it better, but it's very, very time-consuming. So it's not just um, trying to, to see more people to make a profit. It is trying to get enough people to fill in, in enough of the blanks. Many of these are things that were previously just sort of understood, now they can't be understood. And people design programs where you repeat the same thing over and over again in different places, and the different sections are supposed to talk to each other on the, you know, the computer is supposed to talk to itself, but it doesn't. Um, and one group of people tell you one thing, and another group of people tell you something completely different. And um, a lot of it is trying to satisfy the demands of the federal government. And the federal government is the leader in um, producing the list of things that's, that's required that have to be in a patient chart. And all the other insurance companies are following the lead, which makes it seem one reason why if there was single payer, it would be a lot simpler because we can't get rid of the uh, requirements. Um, and when I say requirements, I mean um, what goes into the history, the immunization record, the surgical record, the family history record, the drug allergy record. Um, it, there's a very long list, pap smears, colonoscopies, you name it. It's an enormous list. And um, someone like myself, who was not trained in computers to begin with, um, finds it to be more of a burden. And I will say that all the young doctors coming up don't mind it at all. But they would like to have computer systems that are better integrated than what we have right now. We have a big confusing mess. So fortunately, the young doctors are coming in, and uh, they're going to be handling it with much less griping than the old people such as myself. Part A big reason why many doctors left, stopped taking insurance it's such a headache to take all the insurances, and they did not want um, the government to tell them what to do. So it's a combination of 
the hassles of the insurance company plus anger at the government for telling them what to do. So they streamline their patient population. They say it's all private pay. They have the best of the best in terms of the patients. Um, and to heck with everybody else. Now, I've, I never did that, and I never would, because I don't think that's the appropriate way to view the populace. <laughs> okay. So I, I got a lot of ideas in there just now. Well, with the, um, the increased uh, documentation required, uh, some of the redundancies that you speak about, the cumbersome, the not well-integrated, um, is I know last week we played a, a uh, conversation that Ralph Nader was having with uh, Malcolm Sparrow, who's a specialist in fraud detection. <laughs> and he said that 10% of is fraud. I mean, do you see, was that ever raised as a a reason for some of this documentation to try to uh, increase accountability, whether it was from the provider uh, submitting for payment, or is, is this something that um, lawyers have come up with or as a result of lawsuits? I don't think that this requirement is to prevent fraud. Uh, Preventing fraud has to do with proper coding, primarily so that you don't overprice what you've done. And there again, coding has become very difficult to do it properly. So, for instance, um, every year I'm graded in whether or not I code properly. And that's because the system does not want to have any fraud whatsoever. Um, and Maybe I'm uh, too starry-eyed, but most of the physicians that I know do not participate in fraud, period. There are some out there. I mean, there were all the pill mill doctors that got so many people addicted to narcotics. I mean, they, were, they all had medical licenses and, and were doing that, and that's tantamount to you know fraud of the worst kind. I don't think that the way to catch fraud is to make the computer system so complex I think it's just a matter of doing what's right for the patients, but doing it in a way that is less painful and less, uh, I want to use, all I can think of is the word serpiginous, but that's not a good word, <laughs> convoluted, less convoluted okay. than what we're going through right now. I think in 10 years, these growing pains, these computer growing pains are going to be over with. Um, but if we reach for a stronger computer system, and if everyone can adopt a computer system, that's going to be helpful. If, if you go from location to location and people are on the same computer system, that's probably a good thing. And it just becomes second nature to use that system. And, and as well as, uh, would you think that a one-payer system would help simplify uh, Yes. On the administration side? Yeah, I do. So let's talk about uh, the numbers, which I was looking up today knowing that I was coming in. And you might, might talk about this. Um, you might have talked about this on every show. I don't know. <laughs> well, let's hear it. Uh, let's see. I've got to find the page here. 
This is about physicians supporting single payer. Apparently, physicians have swung over as a group to the majority are, are in support of single payer at this point. Um, it certainly wasn't that way five years ago or ten years ago. Now I can't find the statistic in here, which is too bad. But, oh, here we go. So 51% were opposed to um, the Affordable Care Act. That's not the same as single payer. Uh, a few years ago, but two years later, in 2017, 56% supported the Affordable Care. And, uh, gosh, where's the rest of it? I'm flipping these pages here. Oh, for single payer, they like simplicity, fewer hassles with insurance, and more stable coverage. It's very difficult to provide care when you have to keep an office going, um, and, and if there's no money to do that. And uh, some of the problems with stability are if you have a crummy insurance program with a very high copay, it's hard to collect the copay. Or if you're doing a surgical procedure and then you go to collect on the surgical procedure, but the person hasn't paid their insurance, then you don't get paid. And um, for years, when I was in private practice, we had a real lack of revenue. And it was because, um, it was hard to get the money from the insurance companies. They would do everything they could to reject the claim. The first part of the money went to the bank when it came in. The next part went to the staff because you couldn't have them quit. The next part went to the utilities because you had to have electric and water, et cetera. And after that came the physicians, the owners of the practice. And then at the end, I have to say, came what we called the vendors, the people we could string along and mail them $100. And there were years where um, we had to take out a bank loan in January and February and sometimes into March to make up the difference because when people changed insurances in January, no insurance companies would pay any money. And there are still a few practices out there that are not involved in large corporations where that's the case. They actually take out a bank loan to tide them over while the insurance companies get their get themselves organized after the first of the year um what else <laughs> well with um when you talk to your colleagues in other countries do they experience this kind of juggling just to cover their bills and pay their staff and i think that in other countries none of this exists i think that the doctors there expect to be paid a salary most likely with very little bonus thrown in, meaning uh, uh, that you don't really get paid for how much work you do. But I don't really know. But when they go into medicine, they expect that their salary is going to be based on the specialty that they go into and to some extent how many hours a week they work. And they, they don't, they're not involved in, uh, in this big mess that we are. When you talked about the support uh, doctor support for the ACA and and then how it's become majority for a single a single payer plan did you see any bump in the number of patients coming into your office when the ACA passed I did not um, I think I've always had a, a pretty full office and it is has always been regimented how many people per day I'm going to see and I've never had a lack of patients and I didn't really feel a bump but I do feel that in 
practicality, physicians are liking the idea that there are more people who can have medical treatment, and maybe it does have to do with finances. How many of these procedures are we doing? How many, you know, surgeries? How many colonoscopies? How many cancer treatments are we doing? And the more people, it, it puts them on a better footing. Um, but it's it's sort of like quicksand too, <laughs> because um, you don't you can't guarantee that that money is going to be there that the procedure wasn't canceled or something like that. So a single payer would take a lot of the um, anxiety, the financial anxiety, away from what we should be doing, which is providing medical treatment. You shared that uh, you do volunteer work down at uh, St. Joseph's Clinic down in Butchertown. The patients that you see there, are those patients who have no medical insurance? What's going on with the, uh, the patient flow there? Well, I'm just interested to, to hear that. We've got the, the ACA, and isn't that supposed to be the cure-all for everything? Well, clearly it's not because there are many, many people who don't have insurance. Um, I've talked to people who work in a, a situation where to the right and the left of them, they're getting, people are getting paid one wage and they have insurance, but this person and the person two persons away from her, they get paid less money and they have no insurance. And they can't do anything about it because maybe they're not here legally. Um, and in, if you have any insurance at all, you're not welcome to go to that clinic. That clinic is entirely for people without insurance. Everyone who works there is a volunteer, from the um, person who greets you at the door to the translator to the nurses to the pharmacists, to the scribes who do a lot of typing in the computer, to the doctors. It's uh, all volunteer, which to me just shows what the level of commitment is for people who um, care about what they're doing because they're doing all this for no money whatsoever. As a matter of fact, <laughs> the person who runs the clinic uh, makes a big joke about he wants us to code things properly and to put down how much we're giving away. He says, this way, you know, you can become rich. He's just trying to be funny sure. when he says that. And um, the medicine is free. However, you can only give out one month at a time. But I, tr I try, and I'm sure everybody else does too, to use medicines that are not expensive so that once somebody's blood pressure is controlled or their diabetes is controlled, I will give them a one-year prescription to the pharmacy in town that... Um, gives away medicine and say, look, if you go to that pharmacy, you have this medicine for an entire year because at this point you're, you're in good shape. And that happens a lot. Um, what else? They have maybe once a month an orthopedic clinic, a dermatology clinic, a hand clinic, a dental clinic, um, and everybody's a volunteer. They don't do any gynecology at all. No OB, no GYN, no STD testing, which is a shame. But uh, some of those things are expensive, and the clinic couldn't afford it. I'm sure that's part of it. Uh, the clinic is, is is expanding. They're going into the old St. Joseph School, and they're going to have more exam rooms. Um, and all that money has been donated by, by uh, the city, by corporations, by hospitals uh, to expand the clinic. So... On the one hand, you have 
an insurance company like Humana that may or may not be helping people as best they can, but on the other hand, they're donating hundreds of thousands of dollars to the expansion of a free clinic. And that's the world we live in. Well, that's the world we live in in the United States. Well, that is our world. We're living here, and it's a complicated reality. Another and, thing and is they have something called uh, sur SOS, Surgery on Sunday. And this is a sort of, I guess it's a once-a-month surgery, and it travels from one hospital to another. And they use the operating rooms of the hospital, and everything is provided free, which is a great service. So, for instance, gallbladder surgery... Um, or knee replacement. And one of the reasons this clinic works is because some of the doctors in town are very, very well-respected, and they know everybody, and they know how to call for favors. So they will call Dr. So-and-so and say, look, I've got this person who needs such and such. Can you help them? And nobody ever says no. So there's a lot of sharing that's going on out there. It grows because the need grows, and... Again, in other countries, we don't have to do volunteers. I mean, healthcare providers are supported; they're they're paid. And what only in the United States, this yeah. what the exceptional America that we have to resort to what the uh, the rural area medicals, the Rams that we see um, the news clips of people lining up for, for days in advance to get medical treatment in whether it's Appalachia uh, and other rural areas, the remote um, areas in our country. They don't have insurance and they have to resort to these clinics. Um, that's, uh, I know it, 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 it's it's blows my, my you, mind. You have to look at it though, in terms of the service that that is being provided, and you would assume that everybody providing that service thinks that people should have health care. There's no question about that. Oh, it's. I mean, these folks are providing such uh, vital services to folks in this country, whether they're citizens, uh, whether they're here legally or illegally under HR 676 those those persons would be provided health care right the volunteer doctors do you all get into discussions about a support for a single payer plan oh i would say i haven't done that <laughs> okay no um, i haven't done that i i know that everyone there supports it because Obviously, they think that all the people, whether they're rich or poor, should have health care or they wouldn't be there. They also think that uh, people who are not citizens, full citizens, should also get health care or they wouldn't be doing this. It's important to them to be helpful to, to others, even if they speak a, a different language, sure. Sure. such as Spanish or... Gosh, I've seen people there from all over the world. Lots of times it's uh, someone who's visiting, like parents from Iraq or uh, a, a couple who have moved here from, um, gosh, I'm blanking out on the country. It begins with a D. It's in the middle. Uh, the family them. member is here visiting, has absolutely no insurance, and they need medicine or they get sick. Um, there's a lot of that that goes on.
Now, Project Warm's office is down here on Shelby, and Sojourn Church is there in the neighborhood. They have monthly uh, health clinics. Is there any kind of coordination between any of the free clinics? I have to say I don't know. Okay. Sorry. Fran, how long have you been volunteering over uh, at St. Just Joe's? for a year. When okay. I considered retiring, I thought, well, I, I don't think I can retire completely. Maybe I will see what this volunteering thing is like. And it is different because you're limited. You have to say, no, we're not going to do that, or we can't do that, or we won't do that. Um, and that's difficult as well. Fran, how did you come to support a single-payer health plan? <laughs> I think I've always supported it. Okay. Period. I mean, I, I, I was raised with the belief that people deserve health care, and I've always believed that. So it's not like I suddenly came to it. I haven't worked for it. Uh, I've been busy working. Yes. And uh, not for that. <laughs> But I think, you know, there's a time to, to work for it. And this is a good time because there's so much uh, discussion about health care and uh, the way the attitudes have been changing. The biggest problem with doctors is that doctors are so independent and they'll go down a certain line of thinking and then rather than say, let's have single payer, they'll say, let's have VIP. And, and they're reacting to the same pressures, but they're reacting in a different way. Um, but I think that the younger doctors coming out are going to be the the best hope for what direction it's going in. Okay. Well, as you know, we've got, let me see, I believe at least 120 co-sponsors of H.R. 676 in the U.S. House, the expanded and improved Medicare for All system, and Representative John Yarmouth is one of those co-sponsors great um, uh, is there anything that you'd like to say to any of your colleagues in the field about becoming an advocate for single-payer health health care yeah i think i would say that the time to do that is now that this is a great time to come out and support that change and it's a big change but it's it would help our nation tremendously what do you think on our with our uh, the Kentuckians for single payer health care? What what are some things that you think we should be doing? Oh dear, uh, I'm not quite sure, but I don't know if enough has been done in with reaching out to the medical community. I know that uh, there were some grand rounds with. Dr. Adams, but that was like 15 years ago um, down at Norton that I went to. Um, I think it, you want to continue with those types of efforts and not give up and maybe try to get into the hospitals and speak in that uh, in those ways. I think you'd find more support um, than you knew you had, meaning the support might be there. Um, it might be a little tepid initially, but you just have to keep at it. Fran, any closing thoughts on whether the the long view with uh, with your practice and, and how things have trended? They say that the trend is finally to get more people into primary care. 
And I think that is the most important issue. Um, I read in the Courier-Journal in the early 2000s that uh, only 10% of people, of graduates, go into primary care, but then it actually turns out to be 2% doing primary care because 8% go into like internal medicine and then branch off into specialties. But that number is actually increasing, and um, it's recommended that primary care be 40% of the medical force. And so um, I would like to see more people go into primary care, and apparently it's happening very slowly from what I understand. And more people are going into that the primary care field due to, is it, some assistance with tuition or, or write-offs like you no. were talking about? I don't know H what's doing how it. How you began? I'm, I'm far enough away from medical school that I don't really understand the phenomenon. But I just have an image of young people coming in and doing things differently, um, going into primary care <laughs> and working with those damn computers with smiles on their faces. <laughs> and I've, I've seen some of that. Uh, some of the new doctors that have come in are just amazing, and apparently they're, it's more respected than it used to be, so that's good. As far as over the 34 years that you've been in practice, how have you seen um, the change in the makeup of the medical profession as far as uh, more women coming in, uh, more minorities coming in? Did there are definitely more women and more minorities okay. coming in. And do you think, what are some of the things that you, if you had a magic wand to eliminate some of the disparities between geographic areas, rural versus urban, um, within, this, within our uh, area here, between West Louisville, East Louisville, uh, blacks, African American, Hispanics. What, what would you uh, suggest that we do? Would a single payer system help eliminate some of those disparities? I think it would provide more, um, more care and more people being willing to go into those areas um, and uh, talking more about healthy lifestyle, which we didn't even get to. Uh, in this conversation, but the whole idea of uh, what you eat and, and um, how, how much exercise you can do. But, you know, if somebody's working two jobs a day or three jobs a day, they have no time at all for exercise. That's just ridiculous. Um, but I think uh, in order to alleviate some of the disparities, you have to have health care provided, or I'm not saying the right thing, <laughs> you would you you have to eliminate some of the disparities in the insurance program. I think we'll always have private insurance in this country, but it it doesn't have to be the dominant mode. The dominant mode can be the same insurance for everybody, and those who happen to pay more or have more money and want to have something extra, let them buy it. But let everybody have the basics. Dr. And Frank. I don't have a magic wand. <laughs> okay. It's a well, shame, isn't it? Well, we'll save that for the next time. Okay. Dr. Fran Weinstock, family physician for 34 years, volunteer with St. Joseph's Medical Clinic down in Butchertown.
thanks so much for coming back. Thank you, too. Thanks for inviting me. Okay, time to wrap it up. So, for more information about Kentuckians for Single-Payer Health Care, go to kyhealthcare.org, kyhealthcare.org. And to become involved with our all-volunteer community radio station, go to forwardradio.org. That's forwardradio.org. And I hope to see everybody on the 24th, July 24th, at the Mazzoli Federal Building, 7th and Chestnut, 11 a.m. Join us for our rally, march, and celebration of Medicare's 56th birthday.